Welcome to Hear Me Now, the preaching podcast. I'm Dr. John Nixon, Sr., and this is my story. I'm not one of those pastors who knew from childhood that he was destined for the ministry. You know the type. Preaching when they were little children, little makeshift microphones walking around the house before they could even talk well. That, that wasn't me. I have some friends like that, but that wasn't me. I never felt that I was called to the ministry as a child. In fact, I used to think I wanted to be a doctor when I was small or something in the medical field. When I started college, I started as a psychology major, right there in New York City, Hunter College. But other people started telling me that they felt I was called to ministry. I never saw it myself. One of our pastors even used to tell me, every time he saw me, I grew up in the church, you know, he used to, every time, I'm not, like in my teen years, every time he saw me, stopped me and oh, I see a mark on you. He said, I see a mark on you. You're a mark for the ministry. I didn't want to hear that. I started avoiding him, but every time he saw me, that was his message to me. I spent two years studying psychology, Hunter College in New York, but it really didn't fit. In fact, it came to the place where I couldn't think of anything I wanted to do the rest of my life. And that's when I started letting my defenses down, letting go of my so-called dreams stopped what they call running from God and started listening. And I began to feel a sense of calling. I changed schools, changed my major, started getting myself ready to become one of Christ's ministers. To this day, I feel it's the highest honor any person could ever have. I've always felt that way. My life changed completely when I changed my major, went to Oakwood, a sense of purpose came over me, and I dedicated myself to preparing for the ministry. And once I did, I never looked back, never had a second thought, never contemplated going in another direction. This was going to be my life. My girlfriend believed it as well, and when she became my wife, two months after we graduated, she became my wife, and we started ministry together as partners. Giovanna's always been my partner in ministry. We've made sacrifices over the years. In some cases, she more than me, especially when it came to family. But we've always felt it privileged to have both the blessings and the burdens of our calling. Perhaps some of those burdens never should have been thrust upon us, the system, you see. At other times, we made our own burdens heavier than they needed to be but we tried to learn from our mistakes and do better, and we never contemplated another path. Graduated in June, got married in August. My first assignment out of school was as an assistant evangelist in a six-week series in Queens, New York. We got married during this revival. They gave us one night off, and then I had to be back to work. <laughs> when I got back, though, they had collected a purse for us as a wedding present, so that part was good. Uh, so we went to work, husband and wife in the ministry. A new church was formed out of, that, out of that meeting. And at our wedding ceremony, let me go back. At our wedding ceremony, 
the pastor who delivered the homily, talked to us about becoming shepherd and shepherdess over the house of God. He set that thing in our minds from the beginning. And that became our mindset, our path. Then after this tent meeting in Queens, it was off to New York City to, to our first pastorate. Let me give you an overview of some of the churches we went to to try and put them in order here. I'm just sharing my story now, sharing my story of the ministry, the things I've learned over the years, things I want to share with you. We started in New York City. I'm going to talk about that church in a minute. From there, we went to Boston, a two-church district, to which we added a third church through evangelism. So there in Boston, I had three churches at a certain point. From Boston, back to Brooklyn, briefly. And then from Brooklyn to Los Angeles. It was like going to a new world. Not just geographically, but culturally. It was a whole different picture. You know, we're both from the east side. We've never been in that part of the country. So it was a whole new deal. We went to Los Angeles to pastor there. From there, it was back east to Massachusetts, central L.A. this time, not Boston. And while we were there, by the way, they did us the courtesy, Massachusetts, of breaking the snowfall record one year for all time. Something like 100 inches of snow. So that was our welcome back to Massachusetts. <laughs> From there, we went to Washington, D.C., an exciting time. In D.C., we pastored the only church we ever pastored where there were more single members than married members. It was a singles church, 10 blocks from the Capitol. Singles would come there on Sabbath to meet each other, meet new people, go out on dates. Some of them met there and became husband and wife eventually. That was an exciting time. From there, we went to two colleges in a row. We went to Oakwood, my alma mater, and then Southern Adventist University. That was our journey. Different places over the years. We loved every bit of it. Some up, some down. We felt grateful all along. Let me go back to our first church. Uh, after the tent meeting, I mentioned we went to New York City to a church called Ephesus. Our first church assignment, it was in Harlem. It was the largest church in the conference, over 2,000 members, with the highest tithe in the conference. I tell you that for a reason. I'll come back to it in a minute. The blessing for me was they had a highly developed youth ministry at Ephesus even before I got there. This was my assignment. I was sent there to be the youth pastor under the mentorship of a senior pastor. There was a youth church that had its own sanctuary. Not a gym with folding chairs, but a real sanctuary that seated 400 people. It had a ground floor and a balcony. I was the first one to pastor there. There were two choirs, to, we had church officers, we had youth elders and deacons, male and female. There were ushers, there were Sabbath school teachers, the whole deal. We had church board, we held church nominations. The church had been under renovation for nine years because of a fire, and it happened that I got there just at the time we go, went into the newly reopened church. That was the blessing of the timing that I went there. I was back in the days when I used to preach 20-minute sermons. <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> started out as, at 22 years old, with a full-time lead pastor, as my mentor, with my own congregation. And it was better than that. Because there was a senior lead pastor, he took all the weight for the problems that came up. I just sailed along and enjoyed ministry. <laughs> I didn't have to carry the weight. This is my beginning in pastoral ministry. I don't think I could have asked for a better start. 
I led that church within a church for three years, and it was delightful. But it wasn't all roses. It never is, is it? In ministry or in life. Eventually, things happened that brought the church into a crisis. And on this time, I did have to take the weight. It's a memorable story. Let me tell you about it. <clears throat> let, me, let me get a sip of my tea here. Hold on. Okay, excuse me. <clears throat> at a certain point in time, my third year at Ephesus, a contention arose between the church and the conference. Bitter contention, having to do with the conference's decision to reassign the senior pastor. They loved him. They didn't want him to go. They didn't take it well. And they ended up voting in a business meeting to withhold their tithe until they got what they wanted. Remember now, this is the highest tithe-paying church in the conference. I'll never forget that meeting. It was volatile. The place was full of anger. People were standing up and shouting. I'm sitting there. I'm sitting there right in the front, facing the members because, you know, I'm, I'm the youth pastor. I'm sitting there bewildered. I don't know what to say. I remember concentrating on keeping my face as neutral as possible so as not to show emotion. I didn't know what emotions to show. I was right there. And here's where the burden was shifted to me. The conference went ahead with their action, moved the senior pastor, and because of how volatile the situation was, they felt they couldn't bring a new pastor in till things calmed down. So guess what? They assigned me to pastor the church until they thought it was time for a new pastor to come. Now, and I get the picture. The church is hurt. The people are angry. The church is divided. They've taken a drastic action of withholding God's tithe against the conference. And here I am, 25 years old, and they're asking me to take over this church with no associate pastor and no help. This was my introduction into the ministry after that few years of sailing through enjoying myself. This was the first heavy weight I was called upon to bear as one of Christ's ministers. I can't tell you how scared I was. Never prayed so hard in my life. What am I going to do? I had one impression of what must happen first. I thought to myself, the first thing I have to do is persuade God's people to stop withholding his tithe. No favor could come while we were in that mode. That had to be done right away. But first, more immediately, another decision burdened me. What was I to preach that first worship service after the business meeting where they voted to hold the tithe? That angry, volatile business meeting. That weekend, they were waiting to hear what I was going to say. What was I going to preach that Sabbath? I had no idea. I prayed. I read. All that week long, I fasted. And then the Holy Spirit led me to a verse that I thought was the thing to preach. I was deeply impressed when I read it. You know what it was? Isaiah 40. Comfort ye. Comfort ye my people, says the Lord. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. That was the message. God wanted me to get into the pulpit and comfort his people. Stressed, angry, upset, hurt. 
God said, get into the desk and comfort my people. Now, I don't recall what I preached, but I remember this illustration that kind of gripped the whole congregation. I took two bananas with me into the pulpit, one ripe, one overripe. And I talked about how, how the bruise can show on the outside, and sometimes it doesn't show on the outside, but it's still bruised on the inside. And how we can be bruised and how the comforter comforts our bruising. That I remember, that connected with the people. That, that really gripped the heart of the church. And a sense of calm began to come back. Something else happened. And here's what I'm talking to you preachers. Something else happened that, through that one sermon. I learned a lesson about the power of preaching. That one sermon also placed me into the heart of the church. The people felt somebody understood. Somebody sympathized what they were going through. And so they opened their hearts to me, attached themselves to me, and I actually became their new pastor in one sermon. It grew from there, but that was the vital day. After that, we led the church to loose the tithe. We did go to the conference and make our complaint. We had a meeting with the president, made our complaint, but didn't withhold tithe. And then came back home, went to work, back to business, back to soul winning, back to worship, and became a church again. I was in that position for seven months on my own. But I wasn't on my own. The Lord was with me. That was a great learning experience at that time. As a young man, my wife by my side, we had two kids by then, two small sons by then. That was our introduction to ministry. Several ups and downs through the years we experienced as we went from place to place. Boston was our next assignment, a two-church district. During our time there, we raised up another church in Brockton. It became a three-church district. And something happened in Boston also that was a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence. While we were in Boston pastoring there, we had a church fire. Excuse me leaving my office one day on a weekday. As I step outside the door, a woman comes running down the street, pointing up, crying, fire, fire, she's crying. And sure enough, I looked up, and the roof of the building was on fire. It wasn't only our church building. We were running a school out of that building, so our children were inside. There was danger. I raced to the principal's office. He sounded the alarm. The teachers lined up their kids and let them outside like we'd done on fire rehearsal so many times. The principal went down to the basement. I went up to the third floor to make sure the building was clear. Then we came outside, all of us, stood on the sidewalk and watched the house of God burn. Everybody was safe, but the house of God was on fire. I can't tell you how it made us feel. Some of the the older members, the ladies, stood right there and just cried. My heart was crying too. I couldn't believe how I felt. The loss of a building felt like the loss of a person. It's a sad day. Then something happened to lift all our spirits. I looked up and behold, among the firefighters, there was a familiar face. That's right. One of our deacons is on the force. And there he was, one of our deacons with the firefighters. He looked back at us grabbed the water hose in his hand and charged through the smoke. And we felt so good knowing that somebody fighting the fire knew what we felt like. Somebody who loved the house like us. Our deacon was in there 
fighting to save our church. That made us feel better. <laughs> we stood there watching. They did their job. Upstairs, downstairs, the water coming in. And then they let us in after the building was safe. And then we went in to survey the damage. The place was torn up. Where there was no fire damage, there was water dam damage. Everything broken, holes in the wall. Everything was either, either soot or soaked. But what about the sanctuary? I walked in with the custodian to unlock the door of the sanctuary, see how bad the damage was. What happened then? What are we going to have to do to fix that? And we were amazed. As he opened the door, we saw the sanctuary had been untouched. No fire, no soot, not even the smell of smoke. And we never missed a single day of worship after that fire. Because when the building went, God preserved the place of worship. I'll never forget that experience. There was another blessing that came out of all of this. The insurance money was enough to repair our building, but with a bonus, we also had enough left over to buy a new building for our school. Had to renovate it and fix it up, but when it was all done, we had a new building out of which to teach our children. The fire, so hurtful, so hurting, turned out in the end to be a blessing in disguise. That was a learning experience, too. That Boston fire things we learned through the years. Talk about some of our ups and downs in ministry. Some of the, some of the really high occasions, for example, were the two occasions when I was privileged to preach at the general conference session before the World Church. In 2000 in Toronto, I preached in the Sky Dome, 40,000 seats. Ten years later in 2010, I preached in Atlanta in the Georgia Dome that held 70,000 people. Standing there, looking at the whole, people from all over the world, looking at the whole world church, trying to preach God's word. It was a privilege and an honor. And the Lord blessed me, calmed my nerves, and carried me through it so I could represent him well in his desk. Over the years, we've also done some international preaching, my wife and I, Bermuda and Jamaica, Canada. Over in Europe, we preached in the UK a couple of times, a few times in London. We preached in Wolverhampton one time. We were over there one time in Wolverhampton and preached. They took us to Liverpool, where the Beatles were from, and showed us their hometown. We preached in South Korea once, in Seoul, capital city. I remember how crowded the city was. In Seoul, Korea, there's no concept of personal space. It's too crowded for that. You're standing in the store, somebody would knock right into you and just keep on walking like nothing happened. They didn't, have the, they didn't have time for the courtesy of personal space. And it seemed like there was always traffic. I remember watching and seeing people actually had little TV sets on the dashboard of their car so they could watch TV while they sat in traffic. We preached in Australia as well. And a few African countries like Kenya, Zambia, South Africa. It's exciting time. My wife loved to travel. Well, those were all exciting times for us. Learning experiences, these different countries and cultures, always learning new things about them. It was great. There were also some downs in ministry. For example, on two occasions, I was separated from my family for three months as I went to a new church assignment while they stayed behind until the school year ended. 
wasn't just the kids. My wife was a school teacher, so she couldn't just up and leave for the last three months of the year. So I got sent ahead. They stayed behind. We were separated for three months. The first time was from California to Massachusetts, a whole continent apart for three months. My wife was there raising three children by herself. I was there staying in a little cabin on the campground, like one room in a bedroom for three months. Talking, we couldn't, couldn't visit each other, just talk on the phone. The second time was from Massachusetts to Washington, D.C. Again, I went ahead, they stayed behind. My wife again, three children by herself. Now, this time I was close enough, it was about a seven hour drive. What I would do is on Wednesday night at the prayer meeting, I'd jump in my car about nine o'clock at night. I'd drive through the night back up to Mass with the family. I arrived 2, 3 in the morning. I'd spend Thursday, Friday with the family, and then drive back down for the weekend. That was my routine for three months. <clears throat> Didn't have to be that way, if you think about it. And I think today we're more sensitive about moving pastors at different times of year. But back then, they told you to move, you got up and you moved. No questions asked. And that was our experience. Wasn't a fun time, but we did what we had to do. One of the other things that I think was different about our ministry is the number of times we moved back and forth between black and white culture in our pastoral ministry over the years. We were in Los Angeles during the Rodney King riots. Five days long, scores of deaths, 60 people died, thousands arrested, fire everywhere. We lived in Pasadena. We, we could see the fire up in the smoke up in the sky from our home. But our church was in South Central L.A., right smack dab in the middle of the violence. Buildings burned, stores looted. We watched on TV as they, they pulled Reginald Denny, if you remember, out of that truck and stomped and beat him to the ground. All this rage coming out, you know, pent up rage for, over, for all the years at that, at that crazy unjust verdict. The whole city exploded. We were right there. I remember in the aftermath when the, when the riot was over, it was time for cleanup and we were right there neighbors. So, so we decided in our church that we were going to start taking food to communities where all the supermarkets had been looted and burned down. Think about it now. If you didn't have a car, all the stores in your neighborhood had burned down. You couldn't get any food. So we would get cars and vans and start carrying food to these different neighborhoods. The people not selling it, giving it away so people could get what they needed until the place got built up again. I remember at that time, um, my sons were something like, let me see, maybe, uh, let me think, 10, maybe 12 years old. And... Uh, I remember the first time I went there for the cleanup. I said to them, boys, you're coming with me. Going to L.A., where the riot was, we're going to do some outreach and ministry work. But Dad, they said, Dad, I mean, you know, they had seen the riots on TV. What are we going over there for? You know, they were a little afraid. And I said to them, look, I said, there's no time for us to be afraid. People need us. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray, ask God to send his angels to watch over us, and we're going. And they went with me and participated in that ministry. They forgot their fears and they got a blessing out of it. I think that was a big part of their maturation process as growing boys. 
Right after that, we transferred to Atlantic Union College in central Massachusetts. Let me get another sip. Hold on. I hope you don't mind. I need to, you know, wet my whistle a little bit. But anyway, we went to, from, from Los Angeles, Rodney King Rice, we went to central Massachusetts to Atlantic Union College, a majority white community. We were also there when the O.J. Simpson verdict came down, another time of high racial tension in our country. We were there in a majority white community during that time. Two occasions of high racial tension in our nation. We had to find a way to pastor through the hurt and confusion, not with politics, but with the word led by the spirit. Pastors are spiritual leaders, not just community leaders. When folks are hurting and confused, our job is to bring them to the word, bring them to the spirit, bring them to the cross, so they can get the comfort that only God can give. We had to learn how to do that in different cultural settings. That was a challenge for us. But it was also a growing and learning experience. Let me tell you about two racial cultural lessons I learned in majority white communities that opened my eyes, two incidents. The first took place in Southern California at a workers meeting there, all the pastors came together. Now in Southern California at that time, they had the territory divided up into four ethnic groups. There was the, they were a pastor or a coordinator who was over the white churches, they called them Anglo had a coordinator over the uh, Hispanic churches, the Asian churches, and the black churches. Well, this particular year at the workers' meeting, InterVarsity came to do a workshop on intercultural relationships. And I remember this one day, they had us break up into racial groups, the pastors, intercultural groups, and discuss this question. What are your hopes and dreams for your children? The next generation... What are your hopes and dreams for them? We divide into ethnic groups. We discuss what we think we would desire for our children in the church and in the community, but especially in the church. I'll never forget the answers. It opened my eyes. Now, to be honest, I don't recall what the white pastor said. They were a majority group, and they probably said something general. You know, I'm not putting them down, but that's, that's how it was. But then the minority groups came forward and gave their view for their children and was strikingly, strikingly different. <clears throat> the Asian pastor came and said, in our group, we discussed it. We want our children to be treated like everyone else. That's our dream for our children. They said, our children say, this Asian pastor, they say, our children say we're bananas, yellow on the outside, but white on the inside. I've never heard that phrase before. The Hispanic pastor came up. He said, what we want our dream for the future is to have our children treated like everybody else. Our kids say we are coconuts, brown on the outside, but white on the inside. Again, it was strikingly different when the black pastor came up to convey what we had discussed in our group. We had not thought until that moment how different it was. Pastor said, in our group, our wish was that in the future, you just leave our children alone. Give them a chance. Let them live. Let them grow. That was our dream. Not like the others. 
We had no illusions that we'd ever be included as part of the mainstream. Our dream was, that, and that it struck me, of the, the kind of hopelessness and despair we harbored as a people, even within our own church, not without a reason, but even within our own church. Our experience, even as minorities in this country, is unique. Now, we know Asians and Latinos suffer discrimination. Also, they're looked down upon as immigrants, their, their color, their language, their accent, their appearance. They're ridiculed, they're pushed aside. But only African Americans came to this country in chains, Africans. There was no Ellis Island for our ancestors, no green cards, no work visas. It was a different experience. The Statue of Liberty was not built for us, which only means our faith has to be stronger and our longing to leave this world even more fervent knowing that we'll never be completely accepted down here. But that's okay. We're accepted in the kingdom of God, right along with our white, yellow, brown, green, whatever color believers from every nation. In God's kingdom, we are all the same. Praise his name. But if any group in our nation should turn away from, listen to me, should turn away from the American dream as our goal in life, it's African-American people. We know from experience that this nation is not for us. No matter the few that succeed and reach it to the top, the success itself can become a trap if we don't use it for God's glory. It's not just true of us, it's true of all believers. This world is not our home. No matter what nature you're from, nation, no matter what culture you're from, this is not our place. We want out of here, taking with us as many people as possible by the grace of God. That should be our dream for all of us and for our children. It should be our fondest dream. And that's what we fight for in the pulpit when we preach. To place this dream on the hearts of our listeners so they will divorce their affections from the world and set their hearts on the kingdom of God. I learned that in a new way in Southern California. <clears throat> Had another experience in AUC, and that is in central Massachusetts, when I was pastor of Atlantic Union College. Again, a majority white community. Although in the college, the student body was more balanced, but the community in general and in the church culture, it was a majority white community. So one evening, I'm driving back from a school social function, middle school, where I had taken uh, my son and one of his friends, Paul. They're in the back seat. And as I'm driving home, I ran out of gas, believe it or not. My gas gauge was broken, and I didn't even notice. What am I going to do? Nighttime now, got these boys in the back. I don't even remember seeing a gas station. What could I do? Got to walk. I told the fellas, look, I got to go find a gas station. You guys stay here. Keep the door locked. I'll be back. Leave the car. I start walking. As I start walking, I see a man in his driveway looking at me, a typical New Englander. I look over at him. He's not going to talk to me. He's not going to help me. Probably won't even speak to me. I just walk on by. He goes on to me, hey, hey, are you in trouble? Yeah, I said, I, I ran out of gas. He said, oh, wait a minute. I got a tank of gas right in my garage. Wait right there. Goes into his garage, comes out with this 
five, maybe a 10-gallon tank of gas, goes over and empties it right into my gas tank. Now, I'm still not getting it because now I'm reaching in my pocket looking for some money. He said, no, 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 don't do that. He said, you'll ruin my good deed for the day. I misjudged him based on nothing but appearances. I thought over the years about my behavior in that moment and what it reflected about where I was at that point in my life. Think about it for a minute. I made a judgment on this man based solely on appearances. I knew nothing about him. I'd never seen him before. I couldn't even see him well that night. It was so dark. Didn't know his name, never heard his voice. I assumed he was a certain way because of my presuppositions, my prejudice, against him, not even knowing him. I learned that night, prejudice works both ways, and it hurts the perpetrator right along with the victim because I misjudged him based on nothing but appearances. Then I also think about, and on reflection, I also think about this fact. It wasn't just prejudice, it was pride. I was too proud to ask for help if it meant I might be rejected because of my race. I was willing to walk to a gas station, didn't even know where it was. Think about it. I didn't even stop to ask a man, hey, do you know where the nearest gas station is? I didn't want to take the chance. My pride was rising up in me. Even after he helped me, reached into my pocket, trying to pay him, I didn't even want a favor. No, 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 he said, you ruined my good deed for the day. In other words, I was thinking about his appearance. He was thinking about a good deed he could do for me. I almost missed my blessing. Think about it. God arranged for this man to be right there when I needed him because he knew I was going to run out of gas. And I almost walked away from my blessing based on nothing but my fears, my prejudices, my presuppositions. I almost walked right away from my blessing that God had arranged for me. I thought about that incident a lot of times over the years. I learned a lesson from that that I hope I never forget. Well, anyway, let me, you know what? Let me pause right here. I want to get my wife, I want to ask her something about our church is in our favorite church. Hold on one second. Let me see if I can get her. Javon? Hey, babe. Hey, can you come? Come on. Come on. Okay, she's coming. She... And she getting out of bed to come and work with me. I'm going to ask her to talk to you about what was her favorite church. We've discussed this before. Out of all the churches we've pastored, what was her favorite church and why? I want you to get a point of view from a pastor's wife's side of the whole thing. You know, it's different for us than for them. You know, we're the leader. They're just the wife. They can easily be overlooked more so than we can. And she's been through that through the years. But I want to ask you, babe, come on, what is, what's your favorite church? I, told, I want to ask you. Uh, all the churches we've pastored over the years, what would you say is your favorite church? And then tell us why it was your favorite. Well, um, I would have to say that uh, Ephesus was my favorite church. That's the, one in, that's the one in New York City. Ephesus yeah. was my favorite. And, you know, if I had to give it some thought, I would have to say Ephesus because it was our first church. It's our first church. You know, yeah. we're, we're fresh out of college. You mm -hmm. know, John is, you know... Footloose and fancy free in the pulpit, you know, just just saying whatever he comes to mind, you know, just you know, he's beyond fright. He's he's bold. He's 
unintimidated, just up in the pulpit <clears throat> preaching the word of God. You know, I couldn't wait to go to church. You saying I'm not like that anymore? Is that what you're trying to say? No, I'm not saying that. Yeah, you saying I'm, I'm cool. just saying. <laughs> like no, I got some scared saying. now. I'm like no, a you're, not scared. you're not scared. You're not scared. You're still very, very bold in the pulpit. But look, <laughs> when we first got out of Oakwood and you stepped into the pulpit, listen, I was just like the rest of the members sitting there on the edge of my seat. <laughs> couldn't wait to, wait to hear what was going to come out of your mouth. And you know what? It was always biblical, always right on point. I was always learning, and it was just, it was amazing. And I told them back then I was preaching a little 20-minute sermon. Remember 20, 20 minutes? People oh be goodness. mad sometimes. No, they would. <laughs> at the, at the, really, that's yeah, true. Yeah, I know. The, we'd be shaking hands at the door, and he would be, people would be like, Pastor, what, come on, what, you got to do better than what that. Happened? What happened? What happened? Why? Why are you twenty minutes? You're just, you're just, uh, you know, teasing us. Please bring it. Give us a little longer That's true. That's sermon. True. That's true. Twenty minutes is not quite enough. So, but, but I would say, yeah, Ephesus now, was my father. You told me some other favorite. reasons why you love Ephesus so more, more on the personal side. Well, okay. well, you know, well, of course, you know, it was our first pastor. Right. Number one. Number two, we had our first two children there. That's true. You John know, and Paul so were born so there. we conceived while pastoring there. Yeah, yeah. And then we had the babies while we were there, and then we we started raising our children there. And so, you know, there were young people in our in our congregation who mm -hmm. were who were, I guess, admirers of that. You know, yeah, they yeah. saw our growing family Co close to our age. We weren't that much older than yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. We we just had a good time with those with those. Now, young I told people. them we had that youth church. Right. We had a big old youth church, right. like having our own private church. Oh my church. goodness, that youth church! It was amazing. <laughs> It was really, and our mentors, um, right. uh, the Humphreys, they were great. Were amazing. I mean, she, they got us on a good start because they always, always uh, directed us in a spiritual way. Right. They always right. uh, taught us. They taught us to make principled decisions right. and not to let the people get under our skin. You right. know, and right. and you know, just just really spiritual people. Both of them have passed on now, but mm -hmm. you know, I, I have fond memories of them and. Uh, the great uh, mentorship that we had uh, with them. Yeah, I'm thinking he, his wife would take you under her wings and mm -hmm. kind of show you the ropes of being mm -hmm. a minister. Mm -hmm. I also remember, I didn't say this earlier, that he as my mentor mm -hmm. was a teacher, but he wasn't a traditional teacher. What he would do was he'd take me around with him and watch how he did things, and then mm -hmm. I would learn from watching him. And then sometimes he just spring it on me. I remember the first time I did a baby dedication, we were standing there together, families coming forward, and he handed me the mic. He said, listen, you take this one. <laughs> I mean, no preparation. Just says, how do you go? You take this one. I'm standing, what? The people are walking down front, and now I got to think about a baby blessing? But I just did what I had seen him do. Right, right. And There was never that, a dull moment. No. <laughs> never a dull moment. I mean, every Sabbath, every, all during the week, there was always something happening that, you know, it was sometimes things we didn't anticipate. Yeah, real active church. Real, very yeah, active yeah. church, really, really loving. Uh, it was a perfect match for us. Mm -hmm. And then also the churches in Harlem. Harlem was a real happening, hopping uh, place during that time. It, mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't socially elite, but it was still a very busy place, interesting place to be. So that was an exciting time. We were young enough to enjoy it. I told him about that time when I was on my own for seven months. You know, that was part of it, too. But still, I agree with you. That I think that was one of the real great occasions for us starting out. Mm -hmm. Now, you also like Capitol Hill a lot. You yeah, told me that. Yeah. Because? It, well, Capitol Hill, it was, it was, first of all, 
I believe every time we had a difficult church, the next church was always kind of a little, God was like, you know, giving us a little break for a little while. And Capitol Hill was one of those churches. Capitol Hill was a a break church, you know. In other words, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, big issues going on there. You didn't go, you weren't going there to put out fires. But we went there specifically because... I think I really believe God was just giving us a little time of of, of not relaxation because mm-hmm. you still worked hard, mm-hmm. uh, but um, the people were just so amazingly loving young, and young church, a y- very young church. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were very few children in the church. That's true. That's very true. few children in the church, mostly young adults looking for a mate or dating yes, or yes. young families that didn't start having children yet. So it was really a very interesting church. And because there were a few very older, uh, a few mm-hmm, mm-hmm. older ladies there yeah. and older men, a few, not a whole lot, but they loved us and often would give us very good, you know, advice about how to, how to you know, uh, run the church or whatever. And uh, always was just so uh, peaceful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they you know, were. Yeah, they were like a foundation, an anchor yeah. for the church. They loved the young people too. Young people they loved did. them. Yes, it was a short pastorate, mm-hmm. but it was it was real great. Now, one more thing, and and I know I'm going a long time. I want you to talk one more thing. I hadn't, you know, I was talking to them about the times when I had to go ahead and leave you and the kids behind because we're being moved, and you couldn't you couldn't leave because it was the school year. That happened twice. I can think about. Mm-hmm. Talk for just a minute about that. Was like I'm thinking about you know. Our pastors and spouses might be listening. Talk for just a minute about what it was like when I had to go and leave you behind with the kids and go off to a new place and all of that. How, how was that for you? Well, you can only imagine how it was for me. You know, you know how it was for me. It was terrible. Well, well tell our, tell our <laughs> pastors here. Tell our pastors what it was I, like. I, I didn't enjoy it at all. I, you know, I, you know, I was left home. You know, uh, with the children by myself. <laughs> that wasn't fair. <laughs> was that fair? It wasn't no, fair. Seriously. I didn't, I didn't enjoy it, but it wasn't fair. It you know, I'm fair. not a single mother. And so I felt like for a little while during those times, I was I was by myself, and it it really wasn't a fun time. But anyway, I'll tell you what John did to make it it's, it, a little exciting, though. Sometimes when, he, <laughs> when we, when he went to pastor um, Capitol Hill, we were living in at AUC, and... Um, the children had to finish school and whatnot. So I would, sometimes in the middle of the night, I'd wake up and I'd hear the, the garage open or whatever. He's not supposed to be coming home yet, but he would surprise me. He did that often. He would get in the car after prayer meeting and drive home to a, from uh, Massachusetts. Where was that? From I, I was in D.C. From D.C. Right, right. to Massachusetts. Right. Uh, and that just that really made me feel good because I felt like wow he's missing me just as much as I'm I'm missing him. Yeah, that was true. He's coming coming yeah. home and I'm not you know I'm not anticipating him coming home and you know so you can imagine what that night was Wake like. Wake up in the middle of the night. Yeah, those were some nice nights. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Don't put that and, uh, on the podcast. That's honey. gonna be Make on sure the podcast. That's that. gonna be on the podcast. Erase that part. <laughs> no, I'm not erasing nothing. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna wind up now. Enough of this time. Now let me tell you, I really did not get to the stories about some of the really critical downtimes that I learned from uh, in our ministry. Some times of sickness, some big mistakes I've made. I'm going to save that for my story part two. Little, little enough for tonight. But uh, I hope you take the things to heart and learn from them. And 
So then, preachers, until next time, remember, keep humble and be faithful.